Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name is Angela Saylor, and on behalf of our president, Kay Coles-James, it is my pleasure to welcome everyone to today's event, Critical Race Theory, The Fault Lines of Social Justice. Critical Race Theory, also called CRT, has captured the attention of the media, politicians, educators, parents, and the communities. As an academic concept rooted in Marxist ideology, CRT seeks to make race the prism through which its proponents analyze every aspect of American life and consequently divide families, communities, and citizens. At the Heritage Foundation, we are committed to safeguarding our nation's founding values and principles, especially to those who have lost confidence that our nation is the best place of hope, opportunity, and community for all Americans. Today, you will discover the disturbing worldview that underlines the philosophy of critical race theory. Our featured guest, Dr. Vodi Bakum, will bring understanding to these divisive issues while offering guidance to those seeking a pathway toward truth and community. It is our hope that you will leave this webinar with a blueprint of how to hold productive conversations around these issues how to unify communities that misunderstand each other and connect with Americans with varying viewpoints. I am so delighted to invite our speakers to join me on screen as I tell you a little bit about them. Dr. Bauckham is the author of the book Fault Lines, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. He's also a professor, church planner, husband, and father of nine children. He currently serves as the Dean of Theology at the African Christian University in Zambia. Dr. Bauckham was raised in a non-Christian single parent home and he did not hear the gospel until he was in college. His journey to faith was a very unusual and intellectual one. Consequently, he understands what it means to be a skeptic and knows what it's like to try to figure out the Christian life without relying on the traditions of men. As a result, he has a very special talent for reaching those with differing viewpoints and backgrounds. Dr. Bauckham holds degrees from Houston Baptist University, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and additional postgraduate studies at the University of Oxford in England. I also want to introduce to you my colleague, Katie Gorka, who will moderate the discussion. Katie serves as the director of the Fulner Institute Center for Civil Society and the American Dialogue. Prior to joining the Heritage family, she was most recently serving as the press secretary for the U.S. Customs and Border Protection for the Department of Homeland Security. And in addition, she joined the Trump transition team and served as the senior advisor in the Office of Policy at the Department of Homeland Security. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome and over to you, Katie. 
Thank you, Angela. Before we get started, we'd like to love we'd love to know who's tuning in today. So please go ahead and select if you're a student or scholar on your screen. If you're neither of those, let us know who you are and why you're tuning in today in the questions box. I'll give that just another half a minute. All right, while you're finishing up with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Balkum. Dr. Balkum, first of all, I have to say, I'm so pleased to be talking to you. I have loved your book. I've been reading it for the past few weeks. Um, I have to say, I spend a lot of time reading about critical race theory, but I learned actually many things from your book that I had not known before. So thank you. And I really commend you as well, because what I particularly appreciated is I think you wrote a very readable book. I really liked your personal story. I loved hearing about that. Um, and I just, I found the whole book just well-written, insightful, full of facts, full of knowledge. So I commend it to everybody. Um, you're welcome. Having said that, um, so Angela gave a quite comprehensive uh, background of your bio. Before we launch into our conversation, is there anything else that you would want us to know about you, who you are, what brought you to this stage in life? Yeah, first of all, I just want you to know how excited I am to be here with you guys and how much I appreciate the work that you do at the Heritage Foundation. Um, I've been living uh, abroad for the last six years, serving uh, as a missionary in Osaka, Zambia. And it's interesting that as I've talked about these things, some people, all they hear is that I'm a dean in, in, in Zambia, and they assume that I'm speaking from ignorance because I don't know about America or because I didn't grow up in America. Other people, you know, assume that I you know, hold the views that I do because of some kind of, you know, privileged background that I come from, and neither of those things is true. Um, I am a, a descendant of, of slaves. My family's been here for six, seven generations, um, all the way, you know, through slavery in the South. And I was born and raised in South Los Angeles, California, raised by a single teenage mother. Um, I grew up during the area of desegregation. So I was bused uh, at one time from my all black elementary school in South Central Los Angeles to an all-white elementary school in Pacific Palisades. Um, so I've experienced um, all of, of, of those things uh, in my youth. Uh, if it was uh, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, uh, I identified much more with Malcolm X and was more of a, a black power sort of individual. And all the way up until you know my early life as a Christian, uh, that was the perspective through which I viewed my own experience and through which I viewed America and culture in general. So it wasn't until coming to faith, uh, my freshman year in college, uh, the first time I heard the gospel was my freshman year in college, it wasn't until coming to faith that those things began to change for me. And at that time, it didn't have anything to do with black or white. It just had everything to do with whether or not my worldview would be structured and guided um, and influenced by scripture 
or by something else that I deemed more significant and more important. And, you know, by God's grace, I, I hope that I'm always on the scriptural side of that as opposed to letting anything else dominate. And tell us a little bit about the book. What made you feel that you needed to write this particular book? You know, it's interesting. I've been talking about uh, critical theory for a decade and a half. Um, I've been talking about the the influence of Marxism and the you know influence of things like the the Frankfurt School, um, Gramscian neo-Marxism. Um, since, you know, people were, you know, looking at me like I was crazy in, you know, 2005, six, seven, when I was talking about these things. And so I, I'm not new to the party in that sense. But when all of these recent events started to happen, and I, you know, you can go all the way back to Trayvon Martin uh, and Mike Brown. And the reason I go back to those is because Black Lives Matter came out of those two incidents. That's, that's where the Black Lives Matter movement started. And so I've been engaging on this uh, publicly since then. But fast forward to, you know, the last six years living as an American expat in another country. And when our Zambian students started to ask me questions about whether or not I feared the police or about police corruption in the United States, uh, at that point, it, it was a bridge too far. I mean, you need to understand that, you know, in Zambia, um, you know, the police will pull you over. They'll have checkpoints on the side of the road, they'll pull you over. And when they find a violation, you have to pay your fine in cash on the side of the road. Um, so corruption is rampant. Uh, thieves are regularly beaten if they're, you know, caught stealing something. And, you know, if you try to take a cell phone video, uh, you could end up suffering the same fate. So when people who are living with real um, police corruption and who know nothing of a professional police force start asking questions like that or started asking questions like that, I, I just felt like I, I couldn't be silent any longer and uh, began to work on this project then. So let's jump into the heart of it. So one of the really interesting things for me about your book was what it taught me about 1989 that I did not know. So for those of us in the freedom movement, of course, 1989 is a really banner year, right? That was the year of the Tiananmen Square protests and massacre, and it was the year that the Berlin Wall fell. So I've always thought, you know, 1989 was, was a great year for freedom. But you actually talked about an event in 1989 that in a lot of ways really kicked off all this bad stuff that's happening now. Um, I wonder if you would talk about this a little bit. Yeah, I was excited about that. And I've had a lot of people to ask me about that particular section. I think it's just a couple of paragraphs where I talk about the class of 89. And I got married in 1989. So in addition to the things that you mentioned, you know, it was always, always a, a banner year for me for that reason as well. But 1989 was the, the inaugural meeting. Um, critical race theory had, had been around and been developing out of critical legal studies, 1970s and so on. But it really came to fruition when it had its first meeting in Wisconsin in 1989. Uh, intersectionality, which is another branch of critical race theory. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw 
published her seminal paper on intersectionality in 1989. Also, you know, this common term that we use, white privilege, well, the seminal paper on that, Peggy McIntosh published in 1989. Um, and then also the book, After the Ball, um, How America Will Overcome Its Fear and Hatred of Homosexuality in the Decade of the 90s, or its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the Decade of the 90s. That book was published in 1989, and it was a propaganda piece to authors, uh, Greenway and Mosma from uh, Harvard University, uh, from Harvard University, um, you know what those, I just got those those authors wrong. I'm thinking about another book. But anyway, uh, Madsen is the author that I'm thinking about, not Monsima, that's another theological book. Um, but these two authors from, from Harvard University, one in psychology and one in marketing, basically put forward a marketing strategy um, and a, a propaganda strategy, and they called it a propaganda strategy, to change the way Americans thought um, about homosexuality and to change the political landscape, if you will, on that particular issue, which is very much connected to the ideas behind critical race theory, intersectionality, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I, I just found that fascinating, you know, that in some ways I look back at that at that year as, you know, um, well, we, we, we talked about it as the end of history, right? The democracy has won, freedom has won, and I just find it so ironic that this this rupture that we're experiencing now dates to that year. Um, I don't know. I think it deserves further thought because I just find it so ironic those two things happening in the same time. Um, I thought that was fascinating. And um, it's interesting, but, but if I can, if I may, it, it's important to note that those things that you're talking about were happening on the surface. They were happening very publicly. And so we're looking at those things and we're seeing what's happening in Tiananmen Square. We're seeing the Berlin Wall fall, fall down. But the things that I mentioned were all happening in the academy. They were happening under the surface and people just weren't aware that those things were going on. So these were parallel events, parallel movements that were happening at the same time. And it's just that the one that was underground at that time has now become public and it's moved to the forefront yeah no i i agree it's i think it's so interesting all right so let's let's talk let's move up to sort of the present day um you know i have to say for many people it feels like critical race theory kind of exploded onto the scene almost in the last year um as you said and you you noted this in your book um, you've actually been talking about it for quite a while. I think you said maybe back in 2005, you were talking about it and kind of raising concerns and people sort of pushed you away and said, what are you talking about? This isn't something to worry about. And, and here we are today. I wonder if you would talk a little bit about what you've seen, particularly in the church. So a lot of us, I, I would say a lot of the focus publicly has been on what's been happening in the schools. I think there's been much less talk about what's been happening in the church. So I would love for you to talk about what you've seen, how you've seen it creep into the church. Yeah, well, first of all, this this whole, uh, the broader picture, uh, you know, critical race theory is part of a broader movement, the critical social justice movement. And the social justice movement has really been gaining traction. and the last several years among Christians, among evangelicals, uh, among Roman Catholics, it, it, it's been gaining traction. 
And part of the reason that it's gaining traction is because it sounds not only good, but it sounds familiar. Um, social justice movement. Who's not for justice, right? What Christian wouldn't be for justice? Um, you know, racial injustice. Who wants racial injustice, right? We don't want any kind of racial injustice, least of all racial injustice. And so these these ideas and these terminologies sound very familiar to Christians, and they've really gained a foothold. And one of the reasons that they've gained a foothold is that people don't know where they come from. They're not familiar with critical theory. They're not familiar with Marxist conflict theory. They're not familiar with, you know, Antonio Gramsci's concept of the concept of, of hegemony and so on and so forth. They don't know that these are the things that that lay beneath um, these concept and concepts and ideologies. And so a lot of uh, Christians, especially a lot of younger Christians who are, you know, just coming out of the university or are in the university have really been sort of inundated with these ideas and have sort of, you know, infused them into their Christianity and in their desire to be altruistic, um, they've been misguided and it's caused a great deal of division within many churches and families and organizations and seminaries and so on and so forth. Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, uh, just a couple of years ago, passed a resolution, the infamous Re Resolution 9 on critical race theory and intersectionality. And it's amazing that, you know, the people who now know what critical race theory is and know what intersectionality is are scratching their heads trying to understand why the conservative Southern Baptist Convention would pass a resolution affirming critical race theory and affirming intersectionality. By the way, last year, the six presidents of the Southern Baptist seminaries came out with a statement against critical race theory. This is just a year after the convention passes a resolution in favor of critical race theory. So, you know, these ideas very much infiltrated the, the church and have caused a, a, a great deal of harm and continue to cause a great deal of harm as people, you know, try to they, they try to say that this is an argument against people who are against racism and people who are not against racism, people who are fighting against injustice and people who are okay with injustice. And, and that's just, that's just, that's a red herring. They're building straw men. It's, it's completely inaccurate. This is about an ideology that has its roots in Marxism versus an ideology that has its roots in the scriptures. Well, I thought the whole story of that Resolution 9 at the Southern Baptist Convention was actually really, really fascinating. I'd love to go a little bit deeper into that. Um, but before we do, maybe to, to explain it as a preface, can you talk a little bit about the Dallas Statement? Because you said Resolution 9 was something of a response to the Dallas Statement. And I found that in itself an interesting story. Um, yeah. And particularly that element of how difficult it's been for anybody to stand up and challenge critical race theory within the church or the social justice thinking within the church. Yeah, well, the, the Dallas Statement, a group of us got together back in, in 2018 and again, had been talking about these issues and seeing these issues for quite a while. And we came out with a statement on social justice in the gospel. 
um, the meeting happened in, in Dallas, so we called it the Dallas Statement. And this statement came out, and there were groups of people who signed the statement, thousands and thousands of people who signed on to the statement, but there are others who would not. There were others who were told not to sign on to the statement, and it was very controversial. Well, a pastor in California um, writes a resolution to the Southern Baptist Convention about critical race theory and intersectionality because professors and leaders in our seminaries were not signing the Dallas statement. And so this was kind of forcing the hand of the convention, right? Um, to say, you know, are we, how, can we, how can we not sign the Dallas statement? How can we not, you know, uh, face these things head on? And so he brought a resolution uh, really condemning critical race theory and intersectionality. But when the resolutions committee got his statement, what they did was they gutted it and they flipped it and turned it into a statement affirming critical race theory and intersectionality. And because the head of that committee was a black professor at a flagship seminary, you know, standing at the podium, um, basically championing this resolution, um, Southern Baptists were not going to vote down that resolution under those circumstances. Because if you do, you're immediately called racist because you attacked one of our black professors and voted down a resolution that he was arguing in favor of. And so it wasn't that the SBC was in favor of resolution nine necessarily or in favor of critical race theory intersectionality. It's just that the way that that whole thing came about and was set up was a perfect storm for this to happen the way that it did, which explains why your six presidents can, you know, a year later come up with a joint statement against critical race theory after the convention has affirmed it. I found that side-by-side -side analysis you did of the resolution, you know, as it was originally written and as it was revised, absolutely fascinating. And we've seen that kind of scenario play out um, you know, honestly, among school boards and and you know boards of education across the country, I think it's a it's a it's a pattern that's happening in a lot of places. But the footnote that you mentioned, the letter that came out from the six presidents, was kind of encouraging. So, are you starting to see a turnaround? Yeah, yes, it, I am actually, and this is happening not only in the church but outside. You mentioned school boards, and there are people who now are becoming aware of critical race theory and intersectionality. Um, they're coming, they're becoming aware of critical pedagogy. And again, that word critical is key. They all come from critical theory. And, and I, I try to explain that in the book and give people a foundation. And so people have become aware of these things. And once you become aware of these things and the ideology behind them, um, you know, decent people uh, are going to stand up against this. That's happening in the culture at large that's happening in the church and it's very encouraging well we're seeing almost every day now we see a new youtube video of some teacher some parent or even a student who's standing up and making a speech in front of the school board you know why they can't be doing what they're doing i don't think i've seen anybody stand up in a church or in a church environment are you seeing anything like that are people going public with their with their pushback 
Yeah, I mean, they are. They are going right. public with their pushback and pastors are speaking out against this. Um, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's absolutely happening all over the place. Um, unfortunately, you know, in church, it's a little different than in the school board because, mm -hmm. you know, in the school board, you know, we have mandatory government education and you have to go to the school that you're zoned to and so on and so forth. Whereas at church, um, you can just vote with your feet and, and, and people do that. Um, I guess you can do that in schools as well, you know, leaving and going to private schools and charter schools. But in, in church, people just kind of, they'll just kind of go away. Um, so you don't always see that, that confrontation, if you will, for lack of a better word. But there are these discussions and, and debates that are happening and there are people who are standing up against this openly in churches and pastors uh, and professors and others who are standing up against this publicly. And it's interesting because now it's gone from, you know, a few of us, you know, making statements and taking heat for it to some of the very people who not only didn't stand with us, but were against us now standing up against critical race theory and intersectionality as well. And, um, you know, more power to them. Well, I think you get at um, a really important point, which is that I think part of what's had to happen is people have had to come to understand it better. Um, and I thought, I mean, you you yourself in, in the book, you highlighted something that you, you described as the million dollar question. And for me, I thought it was sort of the million dollar um, statement in the book. And your question was whether CRT is a worldview or merely an analytic tool. Um, and I, one of the reasons I thought that was so important is because I've, I've seen people say, um, you know, CRT is unbiblical or there are problems with it, but it can be a useful analytic tool. Um, I wonder if you would unpack, because I think that is a, just a critical yeah. point. So I wonder if you would unpack a little bit what the difference is between those two. Yeah, CRT is a worldview with clear presuppositions, um, you know, some of the main tenets of CRT, and this is not me, um, these are the leading proponents and exponents of CRT who say that their, their main tenets are things like, number one, racism is normal, right? Um, in relationships between people and in the power dynamics between groups, uh, racism is normal and it's unavoidable. Everything is racist. Secondly, uh, one of CRT's tenets and presuppositions is that it's called interest convergence theory. White people are incapable of righteous actions on race unless their interests converge with minorities. So again, you've got original sin, now you've got, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of total depravity. These, these, these are religious terms and they use religious terms. Um, the third one is, is, is an anti-liberalism. Um, not believing in things like uh, objective truth and meritocracy and, and you know, in, enlightenment, right, you know, reasoning and so on and so forth. And then the last one is this idea that knowledge is culturally, um, you know, constructed, uh, socially constructed, and that the way that we come to knowledge is through narratives. And so because white people are the oppressor and minorities are the oppressed. The oppressors 
can't have insight into what's going on unless and until they elevate the voices of minorities. And that ought to sound very familiar because we're hearing that everywhere, right? We've got to elevate black voices. We've got to elevate, you know, LGBTQ voices. We've got to elevate the voices of minorities. Well, the reason that we have to do this according to CRT is because that's the way that we come to knowledge. So, I mean, these are, you know, among the most fundamental assumptions of critical race theory. So the only way that we can use this as an analytical tool is if we bring over these lenses through which CRT views the world. And immediately, right, the idea that, you know, everything is, you know, power dynamics and oppressor oppressed, that's Marxism. That's not scripture, that's Marxism. The idea that everything is racist, um, and so we have to view America through that lens itself. Again, you you can't get there from any kind of you know biblical reasoning. The idea that white people, you know, are incapable of righteous actions on race. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you you just can't get there from here. So the, the the fundamental presuppositions of this worldview are at odds not only with biblical Christianity, they're at odds with basic rational thinking. Um, and so we, we have to reject this. Oh, thank you. That's a great answer. Um, all right. We're getting lots of questions. So I want to make sure I, I give people a chance to, to pose their questions. Um, okay. Here's one that we've kind of been talking around, but you haven't directly addressed it. What are the specific ideological differences between CRT and Christianity? Yeah. Well, as I was saying, first of all, this idea that you can actually separate people into oppressor or oppressed based on their ethnicity. The Bible acknowledges oppression, right? But the idea that people would be oppressors based solely on their ethnicity and that you would condemn people um, as irredeemable sinners based solely on their, their race or ethnicity uh, that would be completely, completely counter to, to biblical truth. The idea that you would reject things like objective truth and and meritocracy and things of this nature, again, that would be completely at odds with the scriptures. The idea that the way that we come to knowledge is through elevating certain individuals' voices over others, that would be completely at odds with the scriptures, right? We, we understand truth through reason and revelation, you know? Um, so these, among other things, would be completely at odds with, with biblical thinking. Can you give uh, some specific examples on how critical race theory is connected to Marxism? First of all, in the term critical. So you gotta understand that, you know, Marx's idea was, eventually, his his idea was conflict theory, the idea that you separate the world into, and it was economic in nature, Um, and you separate the world into the bourgeois and proletariat, for example. Um, Eventually, neo-Marxism under Gramsci and under uh, the Frankfurt School develops this idea of critical theory, which, again, is akin to Marxist conflict theory, but that term critical brings with it some assumptions 
and it assumes this oppressor-oppressed dynamic. It assumes that we have to look critically, that we have to problematize all things in a given society or culture with the assumption of the oppressor-oppressed dynamic. So the first thing that connects it to its Marxist roots is that it uses the term critical. Critical theory, critical race theory, critical pedagogy, critical social justice. These things, are they're tipping their hand and connecting themselves to the Frankfurt School, connecting themselves to, to neo-Marxism by using this terminology that has clear meaning in the academic literature. Um, here comes another question. Uh, as a member of a church where the pastor preaches in support of CRT, is there anything I can do to push back outside of writing to the state bishop and discontinuing my weekly tithing? Wow. Um, I don't know. Every, every church is going to be different. And this person, you know, is obviously in a church with a more Episcopal form of government. So they, there may need to be um, letters written you know, to, to people in the, in the Episcopacy and bishops and so on and so forth. But I say you always start small. You always start with relationships. You always start with conversations. Make sure that you have an understanding and make sure that you give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, don't just, you know, start off by writing letters, you know, up the chain of command. Uh, but start off with conversations about these things. Um, I, 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 one of the reasons that I wrote the book is that I wanted to give people tools to be able to understand and to be able to speak intelligently about these ideas. Because so many of us, you know, there's so many people out there who hear these things and they're uncomfortable with them, but they don't exactly know how to put their finger on it. They, they don't exactly know what words to use, what terms to use. They don't know what it is that's bothering them. And so my hope was that this would be a tool for people to be able to have those conversations that ought to start on the individual level. And I, and I think it really serves that purpose well. As I said, I, I think particularly, I, encur I mean, I encourage anybody that's grappling with this in their own church to read the book um, or even share the book with a pastor. But I mean, I think particularly that distinction you, you made between CRT as an ideology versus can it be an analytic tool was really, really helpful in understanding what's wrong with CRT. And in a way, I think in that sense, you with that distinction, um, you, you answered this question. Somebody said, I have had pastors tell me that there are some good things we can glean from CRT. What do you think? Um, there's, there's nothing that I'm aware of that we can glean from CRT. Because I know this, there's nothing that CRT brings to the table in terms of race and in terms of justice that the Bible doesn't speak to better. Um, so we, we don't need CRT for that. Um, the, the Bible is very clear when it comes to uh, reconciliation between people and between peoples. Um, and, and CRT doesn't bring anything to the table that is, you know, remotely on, on the level of what we find in the scriptures. And on the other side of it, it brings things to the table that are 
absolutely contradictory to what we find in the scriptures. We don't need it. That's a great response. Thank you. Um, how are diversity, equity, and inclusion programs tied to CRT? They're, they're tied to CRT in the way that, you know, your brain is, a is tied to your body. Um, it's, 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 it comes from this, right? It's rooted and grounded in these assumptions. Um, even the words, and I'll just take equity, for example. The idea of equity is different than the idea of equality. Um, equality means everybody plays by the same rules. Everybody has to obey the same laws. If we're going to have a race, everybody, you know, starts at the same place and finishes at the same place. Equity has more to do with outcomes. Equity says everybody ought to have and, and achieve the same outcomes. And so what, what equity is dealing with is um, disparate outcomes between groups of people and changing laws and changing rules and organizations and everything else in order to have those same outcomes. Well, that's never been achieved anywhere in the world. That's not desirable anywhere in the world. There are people who have different gifts, talents, abilities, and desires. There are groups of people who have, um, you know, different, you know, propensities in different areas or whatever. So that's just the way that the world is made. Um, you know, all people are created equal in the sense that we are equal before God in terms of our worth and, and our value and our dignity as human beings. But not everybody's the same size. Not everybody has the same intelligence. Not everybody has the same strength. And the beauty that we find in human relationships is when we use those things in order to complement one another, as opposed to warring against those things as though everybody is supposed to have the same outcome. So, I so, diversity, so diversity, equity, inclusion is about bringing that about when it, it just, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't work and it's not even desirable. Um, so I spoke with a pastor in Florida who said that he knew that things like Black Lives Matter and critical race theory um, were not aligned with biblical teaching, but yet they talked about race, which he thought was a good thing. Do you think in the United States we need to be talking more about race, or is that simply the wrong conversation? I don't think there's a country anywhere in the world that talks about race as much as we do and as much as we have in the United States, period, full stop. I'll also say that I would argue America is among the least racist countries in the world, if not the least racist country in the world. And it, people who don't believe that just need to go live somewhere else for a while. Um, and, and they'll see, you know, what I'm talking about. And so these things talk about race. So what? Why do we need these things in order to talk about what we've been talking about since our founding? I mean, we, uh, America has been having a discussion about race since its founding. There were disagreements over slavery, for example, since our founding. And we've not stopped talking about race. I don't know about you, but everybody that I know 
who's gone through an American school has learned about slavery and you know, racism and civil rights movement and all these sorts of things. Where, where are these people living who say that we need to have a conversation about race? I've never had a time in my life where we weren't talking about race. And we talk about it nonstop. Uh, I, don't, I don't know where these people are, are living that they think that we're not talking about race. Usually what these people mean is we need to have a conversation about race from the perspective of critical race theory with mm -hmm. the assumptions of oppressor oppressed and you know disparate outcomes are evidence of racism so on and so forth because we are having a conversation just some people want the conversation to go a very specific way all right i feel bad because we've got so many questions but we're running out of time i'm going to ask you one last question because i think it's a really interesting one have you noticed any pushing of CRT in Zambia by the U.S. or other entities? Um, not, not, not particularly. No, not particularly. No. Because you got to also remember that you know Zambia, like most of the rest of the world, is a very homogeneous culture. See, Americans, who especially Americans who haven't been to other parts of the world, we we just we think about things from our own perspective and we think that every place is every place is like america and it's just not and i'll give you this um, as an example of what i'm saying what when we watch the olympics i love to watch the olympics what's interesting is other countries all the people on their olympic team just about look exactly the same <laughs> china's olympic team is full of chinese people Japan's Olympic team is full of Japanese people. It, you know, Zambia's Olympic team will be full of Zambians. They will all look the same. The United States Olympic team will have people who look like every other country in the world, because unlike the rest of the world, we are made up of people from all over the world. We're one of the most diverse uh, republics in the history of the world. And so, you know, I, I think people just need to be aware of that. And so because of that, there are some unique benefits and also some unique uh, difficulties that come from being in the kind of country that we're in and having the kind of history that we have. Um, and by the way, and, I, and I'll end with this, America is not unique in the world in terms of our racial history and slavery and so on and so forth. We're not unique because we had slavery. What's unique about us is how we ended slavery. Slavery has existed everywhere in the world from the, from the dawn of time. But in Great Britain and in the United States, in the 18th century and in the 19th century, for the first time, you have cultures making moral arguments against slavery and moving to end slavery at great cost of blood and treasure. Amen. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much for sharing your insights on your book from Critical Race Theory, The Fault Lines of Social Justice. And I want to thank our audience for joining us for this important conversation. If you work on the Hill at, at a think tank or you just have questions, please contact me using the information listed on the screen. I would love to continue the conversation. Immediately following this event, you will receive a survey that we hope you'll complete so that you can bring ideas that you care about to the public square. Um, and to see other events we have coming up, please check out heritage.org events. 
again, thank you, Dr. Bauckham. This has been amazing. Um, and I, I'm sure everybody's gotten a sense of, of the treasure that your book is. And I encourage everybody to go out and buy the book and read the book and share the book. This is an important conversation that we need to be having as a nation. So thank you so much. So You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.